So I just chucked a scuba cylinder on my back and swimming around this relatively shallow bay, just looking for anything to see. And I came across this little reef and it literally was covered in anemones, like like thousands of clownfish and anemones wall to wall. I've never seen anything like it. Off-gassing, a scuba podcast with host Nick Hogel. At some point, most divers will come across New Zealand physician and scientist, Dr. Simon Mitchell. In the slim chance you have not heard of him, do yourself a favor, find your way to a computer, conduct a Google search, and I guarantee you'll learn a thing or two. In the meantime, enjoy this interview as I sit down and get to know one of the most respected divers on the planet. Simon, how are you doing this evening for you, I guess I should say? Yeah, uh, no, I'm good, Nick. Yeah, I'm. Uh, you're right, it is evening here. Uh, I've just finished a fairly long day in the operating rooms, uh, which was moderately eventful, but uh, everyone is alive who I dealt with today, so that's the most important thing. Awesome, awesome. And I just want to thank you very, very much for coming on to the podcast. I know you're an extremely busy person. I know we had some scheduling issues, but it's awesome to have you on here. So once again, thank you very much. And and I'm very, I was very much looking forward to this, still am. So this is exciting for me. Yeah, no, no problem. And Nick, I, you know, like I love talking about diving. And uh, so, yeah, it's a pleasure. Cool. So my first question that I always like to ask my guests is, tell me how and why you got into scuba diving. Tell me about that first breath underwater, that first experience, what led into it? Was it love at first breath or was it something that you had to overcome? Just just kind of talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, no, that's easy. So I was very lucky to grow up as a young kid in a seaside suburb in Wellington, New Zealand, where... That's what the kids did, you know. We just all went snorkeling down at the local beach, uh, which, as fate would have it, is actually a really beautiful dive site. It's a lovely rocky coastline, uh, clear water, lots of cool things to see. And literally, like you said, love at first breath. So from the moment I went into the water, I just thought, wow, this is just so incredible. And I wanted to know everything about everything I was seeing, you know. So I had this fascination with it. And, you know, we used to, we used to, you know, get in the water, freeze, get out of the water, light a fire, thaw out a bit, get back in the water, freeze again. And, you know, like stuff you'd never do now as an adult. But, uh, no, it was an amazing time. And so that's how I got my start. And literally from that point, and, uh, you know, maybe 10 years old, I everything I've done since then has in some way been guided or influenced by this love of diving you know so I when I left school I did marine biology I wasn't smart enough to go to medical school straight away or I did too much diving and not enough study is probably the the explanation for it and then you know medical school went to the navy became a DMO uh, for the navy a diving medical officer and after that it was hyperbaric medicine and uh, you know but the one of the cool things about diving Nick is that you can reinvent yourself as a diver so many times throughout a diving career you know so it can start with spearfishing or snorkeling and then spearfishing and then scuba and then you know military a little bit of commercial stuff thrown in there uh, photography 
technical diving. So, you know, these are all things we can talk about, but that it is an amazing thing about diving that there's so many ways that you can reinvent yourself as a diver. So when you when you took your first courses, was it did you find it challenging or was it just kind of like I'm done with this course, what's the next course? How how much further can I go? Was it, I mean, obviously there was a love there, so there must have been like, what What more can I find out? Yeah, the courses were, and I was just like mad keen to do all of them as soon as I possibly could. So I think I did my open water scuba course. It wasn't called that then. It was the old CMAS system in New Zealand, which was a bit kind of more, uh, I don't know, you know, Navy SEAL tra- training type of thing <laughs> back in those days, but... I did that when I was 14, and I think I was a diving instructor by the time I was 17, which was, you know, oh, looking wow. back on it, to be honest, Nick, it's all a bit kind of soon, but no, the courses were cool, and and I, you know, I just had this thirst for knowledge. Uh, you know, I never dreamed back then that one day I would be, you know, uh, an influential diving physician. That was kind of like, if you'd said that to me, I would have said, you're dreaming, mate, you know, there's no way, but... Um, you know, these things have a way of, you know, working out. But yeah, I did lots of courses early on and, uh, you know, loved every one of them. Oh, that's no, that's awesome. So when you, you were the 14, when you got your first wa- uh, open water certification, did you venture into that alone or did you have some buddies to go take the course with? Yeah, I did have some buddies. So we, I was, you know, with a bunch of schoolmates and uh, we were... Like this was a big adventure for us, and we decided we'd create a club, a diving club. And so I think we were the only c- club in New Zealand that was kind of all composed of all school kids. You know, at that time, you know, the club scene was very adult oriented, very male, of course, uh, which it isn't now, ter- and which is terrific. And uh, yeah, so we started this club, and we kind of worked through it all together, which was wonderful. You know, because we. That's one of the things about diving, right, Nick? You know, it's not just the time being underwater. It's it's a very social, interactive activity. So you spend a lot of time on boats or traveling or whatever with other people. So you meet all these cool people. And then you, like, you do things like start a club. And for kids, that was a major learning experience. You know, like you start a club and like you have to have a chairman and leadership and someone has to be the secretary and the treasurer and all that kind of stuff. And... So as a as a growth experience for kids, diving provided us with this amazing experience, not just being underwater, but the whole package that goes with it. Do you still dive with some of those those buddies or? Uh, actually, yes, I do. Although one generation on from my school club, uh, I met a guy just as I was becoming a diving instructor, so my late teens, who was an, he'd kind of come through another group of young guys in Wellington who, you know, they were kind of independent from us. And, and actually we had every reason to hate each other because we were sort of, you know, young rivals in the sort of diving pecking order in Wellington. And actually this guy, uh, his name's Bill Day, he... Yeah, wonderful bloke and you know my oldest friend so you know we're still very good friends we still travel and we still go diving together but we kind of bonded over a few beliefs we had around diving at that time that some aspects of the instruction weren't that great and we wanted to do our and of course we were we were seen as you know precocious little 
you know, I would say shits, but maybe I shouldn't say that. You know, we we weren't highly regarded, but that kind of bonded us together. And, um, you know, so I still hang out with Bill. In fact, he became an entrepreneur and made a huge amount of money. So I now um, get to travel and on his motor yacht all around the islands and fly in his helicopter. And meanwhile, I drive a Nissan, you know, SUV because I chose medicine, right? Um, but yeah, no, we're still great, great mates. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Tell me a, l- a little bit about the diving in New Zealand. So I'm, I'm assuming the water is cold. I, I have not been to New Zealand, so I don't know much about the diving around that area. Yeah, so you're pretty much right. It's temperate water diving, but New Zealand is quite a long country. So, you know, we go from sort of, I guess you'd call it from subtropical in the very north to the subantarctic in the very south. So there's quite a range of environments. And in summer up north, you know, you can dive with a very light wetsuit. Um, and then down south, you pretty much need a dry suit all year round uh, for any serious kind of diving. But it's, you know, it's temperate water, so it's not coral reefs. It's, you know, walls with sponges, lots of colour, you know, fairly spectacular topography depending on where you go. I mean, it's like any place. It's got its wonderful dive sites and it's not so great dive sites. But there are one or two very famous sites in New Zealand. So anyone coming here, I would say the Poor Knights Islands. So poor as in poor, you know, not much money. Poor Knights, K-N-I-G-H-T-S. Poor Knights Islands is world-class temperate water diving. You will not find temperate water diving better than, than that. Big walls, lots of fish, it's marine reserve up north, well worth doing. And then way down south, there's one of our national parks called Fiordland. It's a world heritage wilderness area. Massive valleys, glaciated valleys that, you know, the the mountains rise 5,000 feet straight out of the water and they go 5,000 feet straight down into the water. You know, like it's an amazing place. And, you know, incredible clear water, uh, but cold. Uh, but But that's spectacular because of its you know the just the natural beauty of the place so we've got a a big range of environments in New Zealand uh you know it's probably not one of the you know greatest known dive destinations in the world but certainly plenty of great diving to be had here awesome awesome and so after you I guess at the point when you got old enough you joined the the military and continued your journey into diving there do you want to talk a little bit about that yeah well i uh i'd done marine biology for about six or seven years and then at the age of 26 i went to medical school and graduated at 20 at 32 31 32 it's a six-year course here and then so that's when i joined the military so i was already in my 30s um and uh, you know, like the military, anyone who's spent time in the military will tell you that it's, you know, you have experiences that you would never really have anywhere else. I, I mean, I, I had some wonderful times. You know, New Zealand doesn't get involved in too many wars, but we did a few sort of operational human, I don't know what you call it, um, like rescue things and uh, doing good works around the Pacific, that kind of stuff. And... I just absolutely loved it. Uh, but the big thing for me was the diving medicine side of it. At that time, the New Zealand military ran the only recompression chamber in New Zealand. And we had a large, exuberant population of divers who got themselves into trouble a fair bit. So as a 
place to learn diving medicine and get genuine experience-based expertise in treating decompression sickness, fabulous. It was just, you know, we were treating 100 divers a year with decompression sickness in the 90s. And so I got to see a lot of cases and that was really where I built my, you know, my knowledge base, my experience base in diving medicine. Wonderful. Yeah, so I did about nine years in the military and and in supporting our operational diving team, we were doing, you know, attack swimming on oxygen rebreathers, deep diving on mixed gas rebreathers, deep diving on surface supply with bell, you know, wet bells. So lots of interesting diving experiences as well, which after I left the Navy, I, you know, I kind of continued on with that in the form of technical diving. Yeah, well, and, and that's, that's that. That was going to be a question that I had. The your time in the military led you into that sort of technical diving, deeper dives, longer dives, decompression dives, and when when that all started coming forward, was it just kind of the same as you know your first recreational class? Like, oh, this is exciting. I want to do more. How 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 much further can I push this? Yeah, well, I mean, ask yourself, you know, what diver hasn't been swimming along a drop-off at, say, 20 metres, looking down this, you know, abyss, this precipice going down to the depths and thought, wow, you know, I really want to go down there, but I can't because I'm wearing a single cylinder of air. And so when I left the Navy, you know, I was full of knowledge about deep diving and mixed gases and stuff from, you know, being part of the Navy dive team. And so I wanted to apply that to... Exact, solve that exact problem like I don't want to be on some drop off wondering what's down there I want to be going down there and <laughs> so very quickly I got uh, you know it was the late 90s so rebreathers weren't a big thing you know they were just really emerging into mainstream particularly you know mixed gas rebreathers electronic closed circuit rebreathers so I got into that very early with a US Navy Mark 15.5 rebreather and because I'd, I'd had some exposure to those in the military. The Australian Navy were using those at the time. We did a lot of work with them. So I wanted one of those, and they looked super cool, so that's very important. <laughs> and um, So I bought one of these. You know, there, there were some out there in the community, and uh, all obtained by legal means, I, I must say. And, yeah, that was where it kicked off. So I think 1998, 99, I started using mixed gas rebreathers, and you know, started doing deep diving. So at that point, were you finding it difficult to find a team or find buddies to do this type of diving? Because like you said, it wasn't very big. I'm sure there wasn't a lot of people. And then at that point, with it being fairly new, how how do you know you're, you can trust somebody that you're about to go and do this this massive dive with? Yeah, it's a, that's a good question. That's a good question. That, it's exactly right. I, I would say that back at that time, teams tended to evolve rather than, you know, you just knew people who had reputations in the field because kind of nobody did at that time. So, you you know, you might start diving with some people and you would evolve your your diving careers together. And I, I formed, I actually was in Brisbane, Australia at that time. So after I left the New Zealand Navy, I went to Brisbane to run a hyperbaric medicine unit there. And I I fell in with a couple of guys who were rebreather diving. But you're right, I didn't really know much about them. I didn't know, you know, whether I'd enjoy diving with these guys. And we started diving together and, uh, you know, just started doing 
incrementally bigger things. And that was a time that was really important in my diving development because there was a shipwreck there that was a, it was a Second World War wreck of a hospital ship uh, that had been torpedoed in the middle of the night off Brisbane in the Second World War and 265 Australian servicemen and women, lots of medical people, had died. Uh, it was terrible. And that wreck had been discovered, allegedly, by a guy with an underwater robot about 10 years before, but no one had ever dived it. And it was in 180 metres of water, and no one had actually dived a shipwreck that deep ever, uh, anywhere in the world. It was going to be the deepest shipwreck dive ever done. And... We, we planned to dive it, and it took us maybe a year and a half of team building and practicing and working up to different depths, and we eventually did it. And interestingly, we discovered it was the wrong wreck. Like, everyone was calling it this hospital ship, but actually it turned out that it wasn't the right wreck, which was, you know, amazing because, well, it wasn't amazing is probably the wrong word. It was it was very controversial, you know, the fact that we dived this wreck and found that it was the wrong wreck. It became a big news item in Australia and we got a lot of attention, not all of it good attention either, because some people thought we shouldn't have dived this wreck because it was, you know, a sacred war grave. Um, but then when we said, well, it's actually not, it's the wrong wreck, that that created, you know, a, quite a big scandal and... Eventually, the government funded a search using one of the big ships, the ship that found the Bismarck in the North Atlantic. They went out and used side-scan sonar and robots, and they found it. They actually found the real wreck, which is super cool because, you know, the story had a good ending. You know, like we actually ended up finding the right wreck that, for people to throw wreaths on and all this kind of stuff. It's actually way deeper. It's about off the edge of the continental shelf, 2,000 metres. No one will ever dive it. But, yeah, so that... That wreck, the Centaur, or the story of that wreck, was a major stepping stone in my development as a technical diver. And, you know, a 180-metre dive back then, in uh, 2002 we did that dive, was a, a major deal. Like, well, it still is. I mean, 180 metres deep in anyone's terms. But back then, it was super deep. And the deepest wreck dive that have ever been done at that time. Now, people have done deeper dives now. But, yeah, that was a super cool story. But And I'm sorry, that was a very roundabout answer to your question about team building. But that is an example of exactly how that played out. You know, we started diving together. We knew about this wreck. We planned to eventually dive it, and we ended up doing it. Okay, no, 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 that's a, a, a great answer because then actually um, I have a, a, another question that goes into that. So you know at this point it's going to be, or did you know at the point it was going to be the deepest dive ever done up like what before you were doing it? like, Or was it just kind of like, oh, okay, uh, we'll see how far we can get and then, and then go from there. And then what – Talk about like the mindset going into something like that. Like wh wh where was your mind at, you know, to be able to push it to that limit? Were you comfortable because of the training or, you know, obviously there had to have been some nerves in there to, to go and attempt something like that at the time. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of good points come out of those questions. So we, we did know that it was the deepest wreck dive uh, before we did it. But I do want to emphasize, Nick, that that had nothing to do with the reason we were doing it. We, oh, yes, yes. We did it. We, we did it because, uh, you know, it was a mystery. It was an important part of Australian maritime history. And 
we 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 were very keen to you know put a line under that and you know we did in a somewhat unexpected way but uh that was the reason we did it and you know so we weren't big on sort of banging on about oh yeah it's a world record wreck dive or anything like that but you know inevitably that kind of talk happens yeah so the mindset going into it well it was very much going into you know new territory i ended up doing the dive with a a guy who we had very complementary skill sets so he was a very clever practical guy and he kind of managed the whole you know the boat the surface support the support divers the the shot line how we were going to drop the shot you know dropping a shot on a wreck from 180 meters above it is not an easy thing you know you you don't want to do a sand dive at 180 meters right so you know all that kind of stuff uh, and my expertise was in the sort of diving physiology medicine decompression side of it so that was the bit that you know what gases are we going to breathe what deco are we going to do all that kind of stuff because there was no playbook right you you know there's no recipe for this back then um, and, you know, we went into it with a degree of nervousness for sure. And so you should, you know, like if you're doing something like this, a little bit of fear is not a bad thing because it keeps you sharp. Uh, we did lots of practice, lots of work up. I mean, I won't say it's, it was perfect, but um, I think it was pretty good for the time. And, 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 you know, we've carried on like that. You know, I've been involved in quite a lot of stuff since then, you know, expedition type diving, you know, and these recent expeditions I've done to the Pierce resurgence with Richard Harris and the wet mules, you know, same thing, you know, we're pushing boundaries deeper and longer and colder than most people have ever done. And you've got to have that front of mind and you've got to, it, that kind of fear drives you to be thorough and to be careful with your planning. So yeah, we did, we, <laughs> don't worry, we were nervous all right. Seeing some of the stuff that you've done, and, and I, I, at some point I actually did want to ask about the, the Pierce resurgence. Seeing some of the stuff that you've done, at what point are you like, no? <laughs> like, this is, you know, like, I, like do you kind of hit that point where you're like, okay, this is a little bit too much? Or are you still on that, that like, explorer side, like, that, that wanting to know a little bit more? It, th- th- does that question make sense? No, no, it makes perfect sense. I think... It kind of relates a bit to what I said before about not doing dives for records, but for a purpose, you know. And, you know, for me, if there's a reason to do the dive that interests me enough, then, yeah, I'm still at the sharp end. I'll do whatever it takes. You know, the depth thing is a tool to get you to places that you otherwise couldn't go. It's not an end in itself. And, yeah, there's got to be something that makes the risk worthwhile and different people have different risk thermostats and they have different things that interest them so you know like open disclosure right I'm not the diver that did the 250 meter dive in the Pierce that was Richard Harris and Craig Challen I mean I I took some video of them down to 130 meters which was enough for me and I'll tell you why I'm not particularly interested in diving to 250 meters in the Pierce and that is that I actually am not that big on caves, you know, like I don't understand really. I don't I I don't have the same passion about being the person who sees another 30 meters of cave passage that no one else has seen that looks exactly like the 30 meters of cave passage you've just come through. You know, like it's 
to me, that's not worth it. But to Harry and Craig, it is. And uh, but but equally, I really enjoy the the challenge of organising these. You know, the the logistics, the physiology, the planning, the 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 all the things that go into planning and executing those kind of dives. I am passionate about that. So. I've been part of those expeditions, but I haven't been, you know, the one who did the 250 meter dives. I've been part of the, you know, thing as a, a general whole. If you told me tomorrow that there was a wreck that hadn't been identified that might be of historical significance in 200 meters off the coast here, I'd be out there, you know, in two picoseconds. So it's all about what turns you on, you know, about what interests you and makes those risks worthwhile. So, uh, and, and, and I think I did find this out from my reading. So your passion lies in wrecks, obviously. So you're, you're the wreck guy. Um, do you have some, some uh, highlights of wrecks that you've been to or any, anything on the books, uh, like expeditions, anything that you could speak about? I'm not sure because I'm sure there's plenty of undiscovered wrecks just waiting to be found. So any, anything on that note? Yeah, well, uh, you know, the wreck I've already told you about, the Centaur, that, you know, discovering that was the wrong wreck and that leading to discovering the right wreck uh, was a highlight. Uh, there's been a couple of others. We we took an, a real interest, in, or let, actually, let me just say that unlike, you know, the North Atlantic, where there's billions of wrecks, you know, where the Second World War was raging and all that kind of stuff, around Australia and New Zealand, there's not that many wrecks. However, those that do exist, of course, because there's so few of them, they attract high levels of interest. And so there were there, one of the things that Australians and New Zealanders don't know a lot about is that in the First World War, there was a German raider down here in our waters. I mean, goodness knows what the Germans thought they were doing. I mean, you know, it's the other side of the world. Why would they bother? But you know, they were down here and there was a ship called the Wolf, whose story is amazing in itself. Like they were away from Germany for about 18 months. Germans thought she was gone, but they made it back. And they laid mines around the Australian and New Zealand coasts and sank ships off both coasts and probably about five ships, I think. And we have been uh, instrumental in locating and diving and identifying two of them. Uh, one off the... Uh, one off the New South Wales Victoria border in Australia and one off the South Island in New Zealand. They're both in 100 metres of water, so they're both, you know, significant depth. I think that was the depth they used to lay those mines because the anchors were about, you know, like a certain length long. So all of these wrecks that the wolf sank are in about 100 metres of water, so 300 feet or so. And, you know, we found two of them and dived them. And look, you know, contributing to history, you know, like answering questions about maritime history that is important to the countries that we live in is such a satisfying thing. Uh, so yeah, I've done those two dives uh, that were you know amazing uh, from that point of view. Wreck uh, diving in general, I really enjoy. It doesn't worry me too much if other people have been to them first. You know that's still fine, especially if there you know there's interest in them. So I like I love going to places like Truck Lagoon. I'm going back to Truck and. November with Pete Mesley, uh, you know, he runs those trips up there, which are amazing. Uh, I've been to Truck about five or six times, and I've been to Bikini Atoll four times. Uh, 
you know, I've done a lot of these very famous wreck diving places and I never get tired of photographing the wrecks. That's, um, you know, that's one of the things that re I really like to try to capture something about these wrecks that sort of epitomizes what they are, you know, so some, some, you know, quintessential photo of, of a particular wreck. So I have a lot of fun with that. Actually, one of the cool things about photography is, you know, it is the never ending challenge in diving because you can never say you've got the best photo. There's always a better <laughs> photo to take. And so I enjoy visiting these wrecks. I mean, the be you know, every wreck diver's dream is the virgin wreck that's never been dived and you dive it and identify it. And I've been lucky enough to do that on at least three occasions. So, you know, you couldn't hope for more. Some people never get to do that, you know, even once. No, that's awesome. That's all. What what do you what do you shoot with? Oh, camera wise, uh, yeah. I've got a Nikon D850 in a in a Nauticam housing, and a couple of uh, a couple of strobes. But I these days we're we're using movie lights a lot more uh, for lighting our, our photographs. You know, so I do a bit of both. But yeah, that's my sort of. The main the cameras in D850 in a Nordicam housing. One of the things that we are doing quite a bit these days is uh, playing around with these different techniques for lighting dark spaces. You know, like the engine room on a ship. You know, great big dark space, and you know, a couple of strobes going off just lights a tiny little bit of it in front of you. But Pete Mesley, in fact, has been at the forefront of developing these techniques where you put the camera on a tripod and you take multiple photos of the same frame with different bits of it lit up it's amazing technique and then you get this composite image that looks like wow you know how the hell did they do that because this big area underwater that's all lit up so i'm doing a bit of that um pete taught me that technique i'm very grateful and having some fun with that i'll be doing that at truck when i go up there in november so I, I, I am not, I, I do a little bit of land photography and it's just, just a hobby. And I've, at some points I've thought about incorporating underwater, but I feel like that's just a whole nother ballpark that I don't know if I want to get into. Cause that I, I, I you always kind of hear about, uh, people that go and dive with photographers are like, Oh man, we got to wait for the photographer. Do, do your buddies ever get annoyed with you? Cause you're trying to get the shot and they're trying to move on. <laughs> Well, well, there's, yes. Well, first of all, let me tell you, photography is a financial black hole. So uh, if that bothers you, don't get into it. But yeah, there is that. Although the quintessential example of what you're talking about is the macro photographer who, you know, has got their head buried in some weed somewhere taking a photograph of a nudibranch for 10 minutes. So that will drive buddies mad. But the way to deal with your other concern is to dive with people who want their photos taken, you know, because photos, photos always look better with a diver in them. And, you know, if you strategically position someone in a photo, it always looks better. And, of course, then the diver gets to use the photo. You know, they can show people and say, hey, this is me. Isn't, doesn't that look cool? Um, so that's a good, you know, thing. So I, I generally dive with other photographers and, you know, we might swap roles halfway through a dive or there'll be something cool to take a photo of. So I'll take a photo with that person in the frame and then they'll take, we'll swap around. Pete and I do that quite a bit, actually. So that works pretty well. So you can generally avoid annoying people with being a photographer, especially wide angle. Macro, I'll be honest, it's one of the times I occasionally do 
solo diving because there's no one in their right mind would want to dive with you when you're doing macro photography. Is there, um, are you, is there a lot of planning that goes into these shots? Like, okay, we're going to go down here. This is the idea. Or is it just kind of on the fly when you're down there? Uh, it's mostly on the fly, although there are, you know, there are conspicuous exceptions to that. Uh, so sometimes you do go after a, a particular shot and you know that's what you're going to do before you go on the dive and so you talk about it and you try and make sure that no one else is going to go into wherever it is you're going to dive and silt the place up and uh, and those light painting photos I was talking about before we you know taking multiple photos of the same frame with different bits lit up and composite images that can take a whole dive to take one photo you know so that that can be a real undertaking and that of course is very carefully planned and choreographed you know so there's lots of different levels of from no planning on the fly to highly choreographed one photo for a whole dive kind of thing. Okay. Do you have a favorite shot that you've taken? Oh, uh, yeah, I've got a few. Uh, yeah, the, some of those light painting photos, yeah, pretty amazing. Um, you know, I, I say that with all modesty, you know, like they're... Pete's ones are way better than mine, but you know I I certainly uh, had a few successes in that regard uh, that I you know I really like, and and partly it's the fact that this is an, a major technical challenge and like you come out of it with a pretty cool result, so yeah, looking on those with some satisfaction wouldn't be everyone's cup of tea. I mean, one of the funny <laughs> things about photography, right, is you know I've got a whole lot of my photos in a you know like you have a photo in a book or you know an album and you've and you can get people around at your house looking through them and there's a there's an engine room and there's some gauges and there's a telegraph and there's a steering wheel and they're like almost falling asleep and yawning and then and then a picture of an anemone comes up and they're like oh my god that's so beautiful and it's it's like your least favorite photo in the whole collection but that's what appeals to other people so it's a, a lot of it's in the eye of the beholder, I can tell you. Do you have, uh, uh, just a random question, but do you have, like, if, if you were to, to name, like, top three photographers out there in your book that you like to see their photos, is there is there a top three or? Uh, uh, that's a very difficult thing. But I would say uh, there are some people who I really, so Pete Mesley is one of them. And, I mean, I think Pete is widely recognized as the best light painting photo photographer underwater photographer in the world i don't think that's too much of an exaggeration uh, the other person who i really admire i think is terrific and i've been lucky to dive with her a few times becky kagan scott i don't know if you've ever come across her but you know very well-known american photographer and we've been to truck together a few times actually we've dived in new zealand together a couple of times and if you look at her work you know it's incredibly creative and thoughtful and technically excellent and she goes everywhere you know like she's very eclectic in her taste travels the world taking photos of all these different things I've got a huge amount of time and respect for Becky as a photographer you know there's been others over the years but if I say too many more that people will get annoyed for me leaving them out so no no understandable and uh and then back back to the Rex have you ever been to the the Great Lakes or is that on your radar? 
No, but it's very much on my radar. Uh, so I haven't, uh, but Pete has, and he's come back with some just unbelievable stuff. You know, absolutely beautiful. And in fact, uh, he several of his trips has, have been with Becky, and she's taken some amazing Great Lakes photos as well. Some of those photos of the sailing ship, absolutely beautiful in that super clear, deep darkish water you know very moody photographs and uh you know there's some you know amazing examples of technically excellent photographs come out of the great lakes no question yeah no it's it's actually even me being from the u.s i've i've probably driven through but i i've definitely never been diving there and um i know most of or I don't want to say most, but quite a few of the wrecks there are definitely a little bit deeper, but um, it's pretty cool. I was uh, speaking with a gentleman not too long ago um, who he was a part of a team that found a locomotive that had been kind of not missing, but it, 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 it's a cool story. It just got derailed, sunk, and you know, a couple people like, oh yeah, the stories are over here, and and he actually went out there and found it with his group, and um, that that would be kind of a sight to see. But and and me personally, I'm not a, a technical diver. I, I'm just kind of got my foot in the door. But um, just seeing some of these wrecks, you know, a hundred year old wooden shipwreck that just looks exactly the same as the day it sank must be you know talk about a blast from the past you know if especially if you're into history so um it's it's something that's on my radar um but you know there's no time i don't have a time frame of when i would be able to get there but definitely i i would like to make it out there at some point in time yeah pete's been at me to go to the great lakes with him a few times I, i've got this i've got this uh, image in my head of one of his photos and i i may be wrong but I'm pretty sure it's a sailing ship, and I think it's called the Typo, like as in typo, you know, mistaken typing, but it obviously wasn't that, but Typo, and um, incredible photograph, absolutely beautiful. So yeah, very much on my radar, and it's cold and deep though, you're right, and you know, you need to be a competent technical diver, you know, to get those kind of photos, you need time underwater, which is what rebreathers give you, you know, you've got this time to do stuff without worrying too much about gas supply. And, uh, you know, you need to be confident in dry suits and all that kind of stuff. So with with the, you know, and just it, massive scale of impressive dives that you've done, do you ever go out and just do single tank vacation diving is that still type of diving like is that even on your radar these days do you do you still do that type of diving yeah sure it is and actually it's a really important point you make nick you know like people when i talk to divers who aren't technical divers they almost sound apologetic for the like they consider the depths they go to to be pathetic in some way or and i like i'm at great pains to point out that i am not a depth snob you know like there there's still lots of great reasons to go diving in shallow waters and uh, like I said before depth is only a tool it gets you to places you otherwise couldn't go and actually it's a hassle because you go deep and for a long time you have these massive decompressions and the risk of the dives increases so I really enjoy the occasion I don't actually dive single cylinder scuba air very often because mostly that's not the sort of diving I do but when I do do it, I love it because it's so frigging easy, you know, like <laughs> you just chuck that thing on and, you know, away you go. And it, it's, it, I've actually just been to Fiji for a few weeks with that friend I was telling you about before that I grew up with, Bill Day. You know, he's got a motor yacht, he keeps it up there and 
our winter and we've just had a trip for two weeks and we had some marvelous diving experiences um in fact i've been diving all my life and i had never i've read about them but i had never seen what is often referred to as an anemone city so it was this little reef in a bay that no one would ever really think to dive because we only went in there to anchor it was kind of sheltered and and it's just me because I love diving so much. It kind of speaks to your question, actually. I just jump in the water because it's in the water and I can swim around. It doesn't really matter if it's just mud. I still see a few interesting things. So I just chucked a scuba cylinder on my back and swimming around this relatively shallow bay, just looking for anything to see. And I came across this little reef and it literally was covered in anemones, like like thousands of clownfish and anemones wall to wall. I've never seen anything like it. And that was a scuba air dive. And that would be in my top 10 diving experiences, right? Right there. You know, so yeah, I, sure. Of course I go scuba diving and I really enjoy it when I do. No, that's 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 great. Because uh, it, it is nice because I, I definitely, you, you come across people sometimes and they're like, oh, you know, this is the only type of diving. You got to, you got to go out and do this. And, 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 you know, I'm still at the point where I just enjoy all of it. You know, I like the, the, the 10 meter reef dive, the, the dirty lake dive, you know, just getting in the water is, is as much as I can is an absolute positive. Um, unfortunately, uh, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the Malaysia, the Penang area of Malaysia. That's where I'm based out of right now. Um, there is no really diving around here in the Strait of Malacca. I guess there's a few shipwrecks around in the Strait. I mean, there, there has to be plenty. It's been well-traveled for a very long time. Um, but definitely, you know, there's no day charters going out or anything. So anytime that I want to go out, I have to usually hop on a plane for about an hour, which isn't the worst thing, but, you know, definitely kind of makes it to where I'm not out there every weekend as much as I would like to. So what's your what's your next destination, your next trip? Got anything uh, coming on the on the books anytime soon? Yeah, uh, well, I, um, I'm going to truck in November. Yeah, so that's for two and a bit weeks. Uh, Pete always takes a doctor on his trips because, you know, the, he might have, you know, 40 rebreather divers doing moderately you know, aggressive is probably the wrong word, but, you know, full-on technical diving for two weeks. There's often some problems associated with that, you know, decompression sickness type problems. So he he's kind of got this view that, it, you know, he feels responsible for making sure there's good medical care for his clients. So he always takes a doctor and I go along on these trips when I can. So, yeah, I'm doing that one. I've just come back from, uh, you were talking about Malaysia. I've just been there. So I was in Borneo at Kota Kinabalu for a couple of weeks. Um, and, you know, there's some great diving over there. I've also dived at Redang and... Palau Tioman in Malaysia and Langkawi, which is fairly well, but yeah. north of where you are. But but yeah. Uh, so what else? Oh well, truck is the yeah truck's the next big expedition. Uh, but you know we try to go diving up at the Poor Nights, that place I mentioned earlier. You know every few weeks just to keep in the groove. You know rebreathers are not the sort of thing that you can just chuck in a cupboard and. <laughs> pull out six months later and hope it's all going to work you know you you need to keep diving them uh and it helps you stay in the groove with them as well you know 
before the last Pierce expedition in February, I actually spent a week out on a boat here just doing some relatively shallow rebreather diving just to get myself really dived in. I think it's a real mistake if you you know go on a major expedition that's got specific goals not having dived your rebreather for five months. I think that that's a really stupid idea. So staying in the groove is very important. Yeah, what what unit do you dive now? Uh, I'm diving a, an, uh, an inspo. Yeah, so, a, you know, the British uh, AP diving inspiration rebreather. Um, so, you know, it's a cool little unit. I, I've been diving it for quite a few years. I mean, look, you know, I'm not... In my position, uh, I'm quite careful not to, you know, sort of overtly endorse specific brands of rebreathers. I'm not in it for that game. I mean, part of the reason I dive it is I've been diving one for years. It's always worked well for me. It has all the capabilities I want. Um, and, you know, I'm used to it. I, I, I do a lot of rebreather diving, but not enough to own three units and be familiar with all of them, you know. So, you know, some people will talk to you, oh, I've got six rebreathers. Well, great if you're doing a lot of rebreather diving, but I stick to the one unit. I don't have the US Navy unit anymore, but there's lots of good rebreathers out there. And I, I'm not, I'm loath to endorse one over the other. And in fact, you know, the major considerations with what rebreather you buy is kind of, well, Things like, who am I going to dive with? What unit do they dive? Because being familiar with your buddy's equipment is really an advantage. Where is the, you know, where is the factory for these things? Can I get it serviced easily? All those sorts of things are the, are the key considerations. Now, you know, the fact that I live in New Zealand and the Inspiration factories in the UK isn't a very good example of what I just said, but... <laughs> But then there's no one who makes rebreathers in New Zealand. So whatever unit I use, it's going to be going halfway around the world or all the way around the world for surfacing and that kind of thing. But, yeah, there's lots of cool devices out there now. And, you know, the quality and safety of them have impro has improved a lot over the years. Yeah, no, and, and, and I'm excited to, you know, see what is in store for the future. And then obviously I, I'm, uh, you're going to be part of, hopefully you'll be part of the, the group that I got together to be able to kind of speak about that because it's, it's pretty exciting to see obviously in the last 10 years where it's come and then what, where you kind of think it's going to go in, in the next 10 years. So just a just a random question. What were you doing? What what kind of diving were you doing in in? You said you were in Kota Kinabalu for a couple of weeks. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Oh, look, the only diving I did there was over at the over the other side uh, near Sipadan, not at Sipadan. Oh, okay. And to be honest with you, it was just snorkeling with my wife. We, in fact, the major purpose of our visit was I was speaking at a conference, and then. Uh, I just wanted to, we, she's always had this thing about orangutans and we, we sponsor an orangutan allegedly. Uh, so we wanted to go and, we wanted to go and visit these orangutan places. And we did a couple of days at a rainforest lodge and, and we actually saw them in the wild, which was wonderful, wonderful for my wife, Sean. And uh, so yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a diving trip to be perfectly honest. It was. No, that's a, uh, I have not been, but it's on the radar to make it to that area. Uh, well, definitely for the diving, but just to do some some land exploration too, because there's uh, a lot of cool stuff to see down there. And there's a big, um, 
I don't I don't think there's any cave diving or anything. Not that I'm a cave diver, but I know there's a big cave system there that's supposed to be a very beautiful sight to see. And and obviously me living in Malaysia, I'm trying to to explore Malaysia as much as possible. And um and then back to it, it's oddly enough I the only place that I've been diving besides a pool in Malaysia is Langkawi. And, and obviously that's not, you know, known for, for its great diving, but I had a really good time because it's really, really close. Um, it's like a 20 minute plane ride. So it, it, you know, we can hop over there very quickly, but no, I, I, uh, want to thank you very, very much. You know, I know there's probably a lot of different avenues that we could have gone down, but I just kind of wanted to get to know you as a diver a little bit. So I really want to thank you for coming onto the podcast today and uh, just one last question before I let you go. If you were to give any piece of advice, or not piece of, piece of advice, I should say. So if you were looking at the, you know, Simon Mitchell in his early 20s and you wanted to give him a piece of advice, what, what would that be? Or any, any, you know, new diver or just kind of diver in general, what, what advice? And I'm sure there's a lot, but I don't know if there's any that come to the top of your mind. Well, there's one thing that does strike me. Back when I was at that phase of my career, the only pathway to advance yourself was into instruction. You know, I'm going to become an own water diver, advanced diver, rescue diver, dive master and instructor. That was the pathway. And, you know, a lot of people went down that just to progress themselves, as I did, you know, became a diving instructor. However, and there's nothing wrong with doing that, by the way. If you want to teach, great, perfect. But the really exciting thing about diving now is that there's an entirely parallel and different pathway, which has opened up as a result of technical diving. So, you know, instead of becoming a dive master and instructor, you can become a, you know, decompression procedures diver and then a, you know, a normoxic trimix diver and then advanced trimix. You know, there's this there's this hierarchy of technical diving courses and the, the why am i saying this it's because what those courses do is they enhance the scope of your diving the you know in other words the depth and and time capabilities that you have you know ultimately maybe rebreathers it's mixed gas diving those things change your diving capability becoming a diving instructor allows you to teach but it doesn't really change you're still a scuba air diver right don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking diving instruction. I had a wonderful time doing it. I'm just pointing out that for the 20-something people these days, there's this entirely new and extremely exciting path that they can take into this amazing sport. And I, you know, I think that people need to think when they get to that stage of their career, what is it that I want to do? Do I want to go down the instruction path or do I want to actually enhance my diving capability? and go down the technical diving path. And, um, both are great things, but that's available now. It wasn't in my day. So there you go. That's my intuitive answer to that question. Yeah. Simon, thank you very, very much for coming on to the podcast today, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, no problem, Nick. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Scuba Podcast.